We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And this is Dave Debo. Today on the program, Steve Stout is with us. He's the president of Canisius College. Yes, they are, as we know, obviously a Jesuit institution with everything that that means. And we'll talk about that through the course of the program. But he is only the second lay president in that institution ever. And he's also the first man of color to lead Canisius in its 150-year history. He's really kind of taking the helm there at a time when, obviously, higher ed has seen its challenges, dwindling enrollment and deficits. Uh, And he's laid out a little bit of a vision that includes much more engagement with the community on some of the issues that we've talked about here on this program, obviously. The idea of social justice, some of the ideas of environmental or economic challenges, all of those items were a part of his inaugural speech. And we welcome him for the entire hour today. Steve Stout is here, new president, Canisius College. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Dave, for the for the invitation and opportunity to engage in this conversation with you. I, I really think the more I look at the stuff that you've said during your first nine months here, that it was kind of important in the introduction to mention the Jesuit heritage, the idea of service. Mm-hmm. That is ingrained in your agenda, is it not? Yes, it is. That That is who we are as a Catholic Jesuit urban institution. Right, and, and the the Jesuits for five centuries um, have been about being men and women, being persons for and with others, um, and it starts and ends with other centeredness. How do we elevate, support, empower other people through our leadership, through our education, um, through our commitments? Uh, that's what it means to be a Jesuit institution, and Canisius is proud to be one of the 27, only 27 Jesuit institutions here in the U.S. And part of that, too, I imagine, is not just the civic engagement idea, but the idea of access and diversity. Yes. Um, and, and so when we think about who we are as an institution and our commitment to all people and our commitment to our society, we think about how do we create this transformative opportunity for others, particularly those on the margins, particularly those who've been left out of um, success and prosperity? Uh, and one of, um, one of our Jesuits um, from, from out in Los Angeles, Father Greg Boyle, who, who runs Homeboy Industries out there, the largest gang intervention program in the world, um, he was on campus shortly before my inauguration, two days before. Uh, for a lecture. Uh, And Father Boyle said, our obligation is to go to the margins so often and so much that we obliterate them, 
the margins no longer exist. Uh, and that is what it means uh, to be Jesuit. That's how we think about our work at Canisius. So a lot of that then is increasing access, but it's happening at the same time when higher education is facing stressors. How do you look at tuition and meeting your financial obligation and at the same time increasing access? Because part of the the equation that, that I would see is high cost is a barrier to access. So you've got a pressure that's saying make your money because you need it. At the same time, you have these, these Jesuit uh, mandates or mission to increase your access and increase your diversity. Is there a, a relationship there or even a struggle there between affordability and access? No, that's a, a great question, and there is a um, there is a tension that that exists between the two. You put it better um, than I did. Tension, yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and we have to we have to work within that framework um, and resolve that tension uh, in a way that best serves all of our students. So, so on access, um, that's why we made the decision um, to eliminate standardized tests in our admissions process for undergraduate students. Right, because that is the data tells us that is one of the highest hurdles to a college education uh, is students very competent, very capable um, students with great potential. They often think college isn't for me because I don't sit and I don't take a test well. Uh, and we know those tests don't measure the ability of a student to be successful in college. They is, measure how well you can take a test. Is part of your uh, rationale there the idea that the SAT and the ACT have cultural biases? That is part of it. That, that is certainly part of it. Uh, but we also know that students from underfunded um, communities, also um, students with intellectual um, challenges, um, also don't don't perform well on those tests. They don't tell us. The tests do not tell us who the student is and what they bring to our community and their potential to be future leaders in our society. And that's what we're interested in. So you must have had to change the process to somehow, I'm thinking, emphasize personal interviews or essays. What takes the place of the standardized test? A, a number of things. So, so we are... Um, developing and, and revising a our holistic admissions process. So it is an additional essay. Uh, it is an interview with a faculty member or an alumnus of the institution. Uh, we have 50,000 living alumni, 23,000 mm. here in Western New York. Uh, so we have alums who understand what Canisius is, what Canisius can be, uh, who want to engage with our prospective students to talk about is this the place that will help you find your purpose and passion? Uh, and also thinking about how we meet our students, this generation of students, where they are. Uh, and that means including a portfolio in the admissions process, mm -hmm. whether that be your YouTube challenge, channel or your social media uh, or things you've written. If you're an artist, what have you created? Uh, how can we best learn about you as a person? and what you bring to our community. And that's what holistic admissions means for us. Has it made a difference? Do you have any metrics that say your student population is now at least on the road to being more diverse because you've discarded the standardized test? Uh, so we, we have metrics, but not related to the decision to eliminate standardized tests okay. uh, because that goes into effect for next fall's class. Oh, so, I see. So, so it's not there yet, yet but right. it's something that you're doing. Yes. So we, right. we've not yet admitted a class um, 
without the benefit of, uh, what, not the benefit, without the use of standardized, of standardized tests, tests in the process. Okay. Nonetheless, it's a, uh, an institution with a student population that is roughly 73% white right now. Yeah, that, that is correct. That's how, correct. How do you change that? By continuing our commitment uh, to meeting our students where they are. Uh, right? the, the demographics, particularly for our region, uh, is very clear. Um, when we look at um, the recent data from the last census, Right. Our, in this country, not just in our region, in this country, the group of young people who are 15 years or younger are already majority minority. So the, the idea that America is becoming more diverse is fact. It's happening at a younger age. And those students in three, four or five years will be our prospective students. So it's only natural that our student body will evolve and change if our systems and our structures do not erect artificial barriers. And it goes back to what you said earlier about reaching them where they are then. Yes. Okay. I hadn't heard that statistic. I had known that the, the, the trend line was there, but I hadn't heard those hard numbers before. I have heard people say that race relations are only bound to improve because, well, my children are, have been exposed to more diversity than my grandmother. Um, and that over time, that shift in population could maybe result in a shift in attitudes. Do you agree? Yes, I do. But the caveat is we must be intentional in being inclusive. So the diversity exists, but what we must do is go further to be inclusive such that everyone who is part of that now um, multi-ethnic, multi-racial community feels and knows that they belong. Uh, and, and that's what we're striving for at, at Canisius. It's not just the diversity, which is the number, the, the data point. It is the inclusivity that is about the culture that we must shape uh, so that every one of our young people knows that their voice, regardless of where they come from, their socioeconomics, their ethnicity, their voice matters. That dovetails with uh, what some other people have said on this program, that it's not just DEI, diversity and inclusion, but it's DEIB, the idea that you have to add that belonging on the end. Uh, hiring a diverse workforce is one thing, but if they don't fit into that culture, if they don't like it there, and a year later they move on, then you haven't moved the needle at all. Yeah, absolutely. You've, you've likely caused more harm. Um, you've likely caused more harm than good. Uh, and that's uh, belonging is something we talk so much about. And you, you talk about hiring. That's another thing for us. As we are in the process of planning for our um, next strategic plan that will guide the college for the next five or six years, we talk about that. Because as our students and our student body becomes more and more diverse, it's critically important that those students see in themselves a reflection of um, who they are. Right? So how do we think about hiring faculty and staff who reflect this changing demographic among our students? I get that the Jesuit mission certainly includes a mandate to immerse yourself in the community. But I wonder if part of that doesn't end up being at cross purposes because the Catholic Church is predominantly white, isn't it? It is here in the U.S. Okay. It is here in the U.S. Is that an issue? Uh, is is Catholicism the root 
from which most people recognize or 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 at least discover Canisius because you are a Jesuit institution? No, I think it's interestingly enough. I think people understand and know and um, connect with what it means to be Jesuit from an academic sense, right? Our Jesuit institutions, we we lead with academic excellence. When, when you look at the list of 27, um, they are um, profoundly transformative institutions um, who pride ourselves on academic excellence. Um, so I, I think people come to come to Canisius and come to familiarity with us because of our Jesuit heritage. So and to them, it means social justice more than a religion. Yes. Okay. Uh, and they learn, our students and their families and communities learn about what it, that Jesuit ethos, that Jesuit ethic, um, which is, yes, connected to our faith, but it is... Um, one of the things we talk about in terms of our Jesuit values is being contemplatives in action. It is about action. It is less about what we say. It is more about what we do. And how do we do that in a way that serves as many people as possible? Right? One, of the, um, one of our Jesuit forebears um, said, ours is a faith that does justice. So this is about justice. Jesuit and justice are synonymous. Right, right. Similar words there, obviously, mm-hmm. the Latin root. Uh, from what socioeconomic, uh, socioeconomic uh, strata does your student population come? Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that you don't necessarily have metrics yet on the lack of standardized testing. Mm-hmm. But is there a way we can characterize the student body with some number other than that 73% white? Yes. So there are 28% of our students are, are Pell eligible, right? And that's the, you know, that's the oftentimes the, the easy replacement for, for low income, yeah. right? You're eligible for federal funding for, for education. Right. In, um, in primary schools, they look at it as how many kids are on free lunch. Yes. Similar kind of yardstick. Yes. Okay. Um, so it, it's imperfect. But 28% of our, our students, our stu- undergraduate student body, are eligible. 28% of them are also eligible for the tuition assistance program, which is New York State's mm-hmm. funding for higher education. Um, so their, their family income is below 80000 is the threshold uh, now for TAP. And um, fortunately, uh, a number of our, our state legis- legislators in, in New York State are, are, are thinking about and talking about um, lifting that threshold to make higher education in New York State more affordable for our young people uh, because a, a family income of 80000 uh, doesn't go very far. Uh, and so it, it's critically important for us as a state um, to commit to the value of higher education by helping families be able to afford, which is one of your earlier points, afford higher education. Uh, 28% of our uh, undergraduate students are first-generation students, first in their oh, family wow. uh, to go to college, which uh, that's what Canisius has been for 152 years. Uh, it is a place for um, people to find college as a pathway to um, prosperity, in for not only for them, uh, but for their families and for their communities. And in that regard, you have something that I've seen in, in more of the public institutions, the HEOP program, Higher Education Opportunity Program. Yes. Uh, something that I, quite frankly, until I researched for this program, thought only existed at the SUNY schools. Describe it at Canisius. Now, the, the HEOP program, again, this is 
a commitment from our from our state uh, to make education available and affordable for young people and families who absolutely need it. Um, those on on the margins, uh, and for us, we have capacity for 89 HEOP students, uh, and it's a program that's been around at Canisius for uh, over four decades, uh, and we have 55 in the program now, uh, and those students uh, get additional support and services to help them navigate through um, the college process uh, because it's intimidating. As a first-generation student myself, um, it's hard. Uh, my, my first semester was my most difficult one uh, because I didn't have someone to rely on to talk through how do I navigate these challenges? Uh, how do I best, how do I put my best self forward uh, in light of all of the, the time demands and all of the academic pressures and the social pressures that come with being a college student? Because I didn't have someone in my family who had that experience. After our break coming up, I, I did want to get a little bit more into your personal story and certainly the idea that, yes, first-generation student. Uh, and I know that to some degree athletics was also your path into uh, where you are now, the idea of higher education. So we'll go there in just a little bit. want to put a pin in that. But if we're talking about SUNY programs and HEOP, I want to look at the contrasts between the two. About two, three years ago maybe, maybe even longer Governor Cuomo basically made tuition-free at any uh, – the SUNY schools are now all tuition-free. Canisius is a private institution, Madai, Trocare, Damon, all of those. Did that set up an unfair advantage? Are you able to compete when tuition over here is subsidized, but maybe you can't necessarily subsidize it at your own institution to the same level? That's that's great. I look forward to that conversation. Uh, I'll gather my thoughts while we take a break. I think. Well, uh, let, let's do the break in a second. I'll ask you that now. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> um, I think there are the diversity of edu higher education institutions in our state is critically important. There are 110 private, 110 institutions um, in, in the state, uh, and so everyone is different. Everyone is unique. We all have our own unique missions. So I also view higher education as an investment. Uh, and for us, 99% of our students receive financial aid. Um, so we are, Canisius College is significantly more affordable than many of our peer institutions. And, and let's talk about financial aid. That comes from your institution. That comes from the institution, from so our donors. So it's a donors. pot of money you have put aside to say... Let's use this when we need it. Yes, the institution has committed to that, and, and our donors and our alumni and our supporters uh, have also helped fund significant number of scholarships every year that makes a Canisius education affordable. So the reality is, uh, on a net basis, uh, we're not that much more expensive um, than, than our public institution peers, and I think what you get at Canisius, the experience you get, the because of our size, because of our commitment to the personal experience of each and every student, holistically, I think that's worth the premium that you pay to come to Canisius. You spoke earlier about a strategic plan underway. To what degree, and I, I get the theme of civic engagement, uh, but to what degree is restructuring college finances 
part of your long-term strategic plan. Uh, I, I look at, say, Madai, and I know that they've sold buildings to TROCARE. Um, I've looked at some of the struggles that SUNY, Buffalo State, UB have had. Uh, is higher education in general, and Canisius in particular, under financial stress? I think that's a fair statement. The The business model for our sector has to change. Um, and when I think about it, for Canisius as a private institution, um, I think we are a private institution with a public mission. We, we serve our community, we serve our society by what we do. And our sustainability, our long-term prosperity is critically important, not only for Canisius, but for Buffalo, for Western New York, for New York State, and for this country. But we have to change the business model. In other countries in the world, they've already figured this out. Higher education is a path to national prosperity. Uh, and we as a society, as a country, must invest in U.S. higher education and not put so much of the burden uh, on our students and their families through debt. So I think what I might have heard underneath there is more government aid. <laughs> and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that the solution? Your, your predecessor faced, uh, I think it was a $40 million deficit. Um, does government help erase that? Does government have a role in this new paradigm that you just said is probably required? I, I think your your last statement is is where I would um, where I would come in. I think government has a role. I think our institutions also have a role and an obligation. I think we all have to come to the table and bring all of our creative um, powers to bear on the challenges we face as a sector. Um, because in so doing, um, we will be able to continue to provide this public benefit, right? Because education is more than preparation for a career. Mm -hmm. It is how do you engage in civic life in a thoughtful uh, and empowering way, right? When we look around, um, when I look around our society today, um, I oftentimes refer to some of the crises that's, that we are facing uh, as a call, a clear call from our society, whether that be um, economic, political, social, racial, um, our climate, whatever the issues are, our society is calling out to us for a different response. And education has a role to play in preparing students and our future leaders in crafting that response. One more tough question before that promised break. <laughs> Lacking the government aid, does higher education need to look at some of the, the really hard, tough issues, layoffs, selling off property? I know you folks just uh, recently divested Demerley Hall. Um, are institutions having to shrink in the future in order to meet their uh, revenue stream? I think I think institutions have to consider how our how our market has changed. Um, one of the things we've learned through COVID is not everything that we assumed was absolutely necessary and core to doing what we do um, is so written in stone, right? And so, do we when we look at our students, this generation of students, where they learn, how they learn, how they engage with material and each other? Um, 
are we structured in a way that allows them to achieve their fullest potential in our systems and at our institutions and virtual reality and augmented reality and um, and so it's more than just online learning but how do we think about AR and VR in the classroom to help our students uh, engage with material in new and interesting and exciting ways that they are also very comfortable with and, and very confident with. Uh, so that in and of itself says to me, how do we rethink higher education in a way that best serves the next generation of leaders? All right, and we'll, we'll get to that in the, in the second part of the program here, civic engagement, all of that. Steve Stout is here. He's the president of Canisius College. This is Buffalo What's Next. More to come on WBFO. Where do you go when you want news you can trust? WBFO, of course. And when you just want to catch up on the day's news, you can go to the WBFO Brief Podcast. Listen to the WBFO Brief every weekday wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to like and subscribe so you can always stay up to date with the news you need. NPR's Student Podcast Challenge is back. Student podcasters in grade 5 through 12 can submit entries. The deadline is April 28th. Visit npr.org slash studentpodcastchallenge2023 for more information. Here and Now brings you the news you need to know today and the stories that will stick with you tomorrow, plus special series and behind-the-scenes extras. Don't miss Here and Now, weekdays at 1 p.m. on WBFO. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo. We are talking for the rest of this hour with Canisius College President Steve Stout. I almost said new president, but you've, you've been there for nine months already. Yes, it doesn't feel so new. I, I feel like I'm well-worn in the job. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about your personal story. Before the break, in the earlier segment, you said that you yourself understand some of the targets that you'd like to meet because you yourself were a first-generation student. Give me the backstory. No, oh, a- absolutely. Um, so first generation and an immigrant. Uh, I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago um, and was the first of a family of, of four. And my parents didn't go to college, uh, but they were committed to higher education for me, not just for my benefit, but for my family, my siblings, um, and for every successive generation. And so they um, sacrificed so much to give me the opportunity to come to the U.S. and go to college at Seton Hall University in New Jersey. I played soccer there, um, and so athletics has always been a big part of my story and and my life, um, and, and that opened so many opportunities for me. Seton Hall, because it was Catholic, because good academics, because it was in an urban area with access to New York City. But Those, sports is what drew you pretty much? The soccer program? The the, the soccer program and the business school uh, and proximity mm. to New York City. Those were the things. And it was Catholic. Uh, my my okay. parents were very clear <laughs> that you were going to a Catholic college. And so um, that, that narrowed the list down for me. Um, and from Seton Hall, 
Um, uh, my graduate degree is from the University of North Carolina uh, at Chapel Hill um, in exercise sports science, concentration in sports administration. Again, uh, at that point in my life, uh, I thought I would pursue a career in sports. Okay. Um, I had an opportunity to serve on the board of regents, the governing board at Seton Hall, um, as, a, as a regent, a full voting member of the board. Uh, and that opened my eyes to what it takes to make a large, complex institution successful. Um, and that's when I started thinking about a college presidency. Um, and I've had great support from mentors throughout the years who've said, we think you are capable of doing this and here's how we can support you. And that led me to the University of Pennsylvania where I got my law degree. And and was there not somewhere at the Seton Hall experience sort of a a mentorship program that said, we need to take athletes and develop them with a certain amount of leadership skill? The journey from soccer athlete to someone who then went to law school. Yeah. Now, I think so much of the support that I was given at, at Seton Hall, um, particularly because I, I was an athlete, um, but also because I was engaged in so much as a student. Mm. Um, and so I, I credit my parents with that. They, um, they imparted on me the idea that the experience is what you make of it. And so wherever you go, whatever you do, um, leave the place better than you found it, but invest deeply in it. Uh, And so I I grabbed hold of my Seton Hall experience uh, and just threw myself in and did everything I possibly could. Uh, And that allowed me to build relationships with the people who've supported me throughout the course of my career. How significant in your current role is your place as a person of color? I think it is significant. Um, I, I think it is significant because it it signifies to not just the our internal community at Canisius, um, but to everyone um, what the institution represents and how we think about our place in, in the world. Uh, and so I, I often talk uh, about and point to the, the seal of the college, which I wear on my lapel, and um, our listeners can't see that because we're on radio. Uh, <laughs> but, but the seal says, the Canisius College of Buffalo, New York. And I say it is not, that is not about geography. We are not in Buffalo. We are part of the fabric of this incredible community. And, and that means something. Um, and when I look at Buffalo, when I look at where we are on the east side of Buffalo, I see myself. Uh, and, and that means the obligation is heightened for me. I often say uh, it is significant that I am the first person of color to sit in this seat. Um, it is more important to me that I am not the last. I've read that President Obama hated that question because he'd say, yes, I am the first black president, but I am a president not just for black America. You didn't answer it quite that way. Yeah. No, because I, I really do think, um, for me, it's more important that I'm not the last. Um, and I think about all of our students, all of our community. Um, it, it is not about it's not about race or ethnicity or where I come from or any of that. It is about how do I lead this institution in a way that is grounded in, connected to, um, infused with our Jesuit values. Um, and all of that comes from an understanding of our faith, our tradition, our values as one of love. You know, the, I, I believe, and my parents raised me to believe in the gospel of love. It all flows from love. Justice flows from love. Diversity, equity, inclusion, all of those things flow from love. How do I look across the table uh, and see someone who is drastically different than me in every possible way and see the face 
of my God. And that's what it means to be Jesuit. That, that's what I think about when I lead this institution, is how do we help create a community on campus and its surrounds where everyone we encounter we serve them from a place of love. And that has a lot to do with why um, this year I talk about RISE uh, and, and our opportunity as an institution and a community to rise to meet this moment. And we'll, we'll talk about RISE in just a second, but you did mention the East Side. You were selected as president in February before the top shooting. Uh, you didn't arrive here till October, but it was certainly on your radar screen. You, you were aware of it. Anyone in the world was aware of it before you ended up coming here. How much of a factor is that in your ideas, your push for more community engagement? Yeah, the, the events of, of May 14th last year um, were tragic in, in so many ways, um, but made me want even more to come be a part of this community. I knew Canisius was special. I knew Buffalo was special, and I wanted to be here um, because of the opportunity to make a difference. Um, but on that day and immediately thereafter, um, I couldn't wait to get here. I couldn't wait to get started. July 1st was too far away um, because I wanted to walk the walk with my community. Um, I wanted to be engaged in the healing um, I wanted to contribute time and talent and treasure um, to helping us move forward in a sustainable, meaningful, impactful way. Uh, and that's how I view my job uh, as president of Canisius College. It is absolutely shaped by um, the events that happen around us. Uh, and that includes um, what happened at the Tops Market less than a mile away from our campus. It's almost a rhetorical question because I think the premise of this program is to look at the issues that linger. Um, does the shooting present an ongoing problem or at least spotlight an ongoing problem? Yes. Yes, it does. It, it reflects our, our failures. It reflects our failures as a society, as a community, um, and we cannot address those failures until and unless we acknowledge them and we have to look in the mirror and say this is not good enough um, we have not been good enough um, we have continued to perpetuate a cycle where certain communities uh, do not have access to um, good health care affordable health care do not have access to fresh food fruits and vegetables um, do not have access to education which is where Canisius comes in as well. Um, so it, it shines a spotlight on our failures. Um, and we have to, and we are capable of, if we are committed to it, we are capable of addressing those failures uh, in a way that ensures um, they're not repeated for the next generation. Some of those failures, obviously, are systemic long-term issues. How much of the failure goes back to what you said earlier about just recognizing your neighbor, love thy neighbor, regardless of his or her race, color, creed, etc. Yeah. I, I, I think that's the case, and I understand that um, that may be oversimplifying very complex um, societal issues, um, but I, I think if we 
can step back and understand the decisions we take and decisions we make in that framework. Um, my, my, my dad always said to me, when you know who you are in terms of your value system, the decisions you make become easier mm. because you look at them through the prism of what do I value? Uh, is it a is it profit motive? Is that the value that's driving some of these decisions? Uh, is it power in terms of elections and being elected or electability? Um, what is driving some of these decisions? If it is a value for my fellow man, my brother, my sister, my neighbor, if it is a value for our societal good, which in some cases requires selflessness, it requires giving up the thing that may be best for you as an individual to put forward the thing that's best for the greater good. Um, if those are the values, then we will start to make decisions in a way that will lead us down that path. And so we, we won't have food deserts. We won't have situations where um, a cross-section of our community um, of color or uh, or any other characteristics are locked out of education or employment um, or access to transportation or healthcare. Uh, those things, we still have to work on solutions in and of themselves, thinking about others first will not solve the issues, but they will lead us to engage in conversation and put forward solutions and ideas that will get us there. I don't want to paint the South with too broad of a brush, but you did go to the University of North Carolina. <laughs> North Carolina is <laughs> below the Mason-Dixon line. Talk to me about racism. To what degree have you ever been discriminated against? That's part of my life. That's part of my story. Um, and whether it's in North Carolina or anywhere else I've lived, um, it, I accept that people see me um, and they see me through the lens of their experience. Um, I have young children um, who are interracial, uh, and I am always very mindful of how they are viewed, more so than how I am viewed. Um, and I try to remind myself. Tell me um, more about that. What do you mean? Um, I have a, I'm an interracial marriage, and so my, my kids are, are mixed race. And uh, does that present a unique set of problems for them? Uh, I think it presents challenges for them. Um, Unique, no, because the, okay. um, they're they're Valid becoming point. they're they're becoming more and more prevalent. I think when we look at uh, at data, uh, oftentimes you know now on forms um, there is the box two or more races, and so that that's the beautiful thing about this this melting pot of America is that our children um, will be so different um, mm. than even my generation. Uh, and that's exciting. Uh, but for me, race and racism, uh, it's, it's part of my lived experience. Um, and, and I always think about how do I help people understand, um, me in the context of what I believe, what I do, my actions, mm -hmm. uh, and how, that is the thing they should see. Um, not the color of my skin, um, but what I do. Earlier you spoke of demographics, societal evolution, mm -hmm. the idea that 15-year-olds, uh, give, me, give me the number again, uh, um, a certain percentage of 
15-year-olds and under are majority minority? Yeah, it's just over that 50% mark. If you round up, I think it's 51% um, of that age group. It's already um, majority minority, right? So non-white. So to some degree, societal evolution, demographic trends will dictate this conversation. But beyond that, how does... Uh, on this program, we usually ask, what does Buffalo need? But I'm going to shift it a little bit. What does the nation need right now? How do we address that racial elephant in many rooms? Being willing to have the conversation. Um, and this is, unfortunately, I think this has become a political issue. This is not a political issue. This is a moral issue. Right? This is about morality. Um, this is about our shared humanity. It is not the right or the left. I love and use that phrase. Sometimes when we describe this program, that's exactly what we say, shared humanity. Oh, and that's absolutely right. Uh, and so we have to put aside our ideological differences in terms of our politics and realize that as a country, um, we will never get to where we want to be, where we know we can be um, if every single one of us doesn't have the opportunity to achieve our fullest potential. And so it doesn't matter what you look like, white, black, L Latino, Asian, it, none of that matters. You deserve human dignity, right, which again comes from our faith. Each and every one of us has an inherent dignity as a human being. You deserve the opportunity to achieve your fullest potential. But dialogue is hard. I, and I don't mean to linger on this topic. We'll move on in just a second here. How do you start that conversation? Opening the door. Opening the door to people who are different than you. Um, and that's one of the things, that's one of the ways I view Canisius is as a convener. How do we open the door and say, come, come join us in this conversation? And it may be difficult. I think that was one of the things I, I heard in the intro for the program is, we have to acknowledge some hard truths. Yeah. We have to have difficult conversation. And we have to have those conversations across lines of different. We can't just continue talking to people who only agree with us. That won't help us solve our issues. That won't help us solve our problems. So Canisius, the way I think about Canisius College and our, the role we can play um, here locally, but certainly more, more willing to do that at a national level as well, is to be a convener to bring people together to have these important conversations because in doing so, we will get started on the path. And you've given me the perfect transition, too, into some of the community initiatives that Canisius is engaged in, the idea that, yes, as a Jesuit institution, you've got to be out there. You've got to be doing things. After the break, we'll look at some of those initiatives. Steve Stout is here, Canisius College president. I note that it's Steve, not Stephen. <laughs> Your family name is actually Steve. It is Steve. My dad's name is Steve, and so that's the one I carry. All right. Steve Stout <laughs> is here, president of Canisius College. We'll have more conversation after this. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. On Fresh Air, you'll hear from people who really make you think, like astrophysicist Brian Greene explaining the scientific theory that our universe is just one of many. And the image that I like to have in mind is, imagine that our universe is like one slice of bread in a much grander cosmic loaf, with the other slices of bread being other universes. No subject is too big for Fresh Air. Join us. Weeknights at 7 p.m. on WBFO. 
Travel is one of life's great rewards, and there's always something new to see and experience when you travel the world like I do. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Join me as we get better acquainted with the world each week on Travel with Rick Steves. Together, we'll explore fascinating sights, discover amazing food, and make new friends from near and far. Your radio is the only passport you'll need. Join us for Travel with Rick Steves, Sunday afternoons at 1 on 88.7 FM WBFO. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Steve Stout is with us. He's the president of Canisius College. We're talking about community engagement. And during your inaugural speech, you spoke about rising to the challenge. And you've even created this acronym, acronym R-I-S-E. What's it stand for? Elaborate. Oh, thank, thank you. Um, the, the team at Canisius asked me to con- reflect on this inaugural year um, a- and offer a, a theme that would guide our work. Um, and like we talked about earlier, um, that was in the context of, for me, um, the events of, of May 14th. Uh, and so RISE for me and for us as an institution means to renew our commitment to justice, justice broadly defined, um, to inspire a new generation of leaders um, who will not accept the status quo. Um, we talk about Canisius as where leaders are made, uh, but we need a new generation of leadership. So we need to inspire those young people to serve everyone we encounter as an institution, as individuals who are part of that institution from a place of love uh, and to empower others by our actions, again, part of our Jesuit tradition, by our actions to do the same. So that's how we rise to meet this moment. That's how we rise to meet this challenge um, that our society is calling out for. Does the definition of that program require... um an awareness in advance of what the problems are. I guess what I'm asking is, is, is a question we ask here a lot. What does Buffalo need right now? Oh, it, it does. Um, and we think about that in, in a very specific way, uh, and that is through the community, right? And, and so in, in many ways, historically, um, service to community is shaped by what the, the person giving the service wants to get out of it. That's not how we think about it at Canisius. We think about what does the community need? And we only know that if we ask the questions. If we go to our community, if we engage in our community and say, what do you need? You as a community, and and this is shifting the paradigm, it's not deficit-based. The community is not at a deficit. The people on the east side of Buffalo, the people in Buffalo are significant assets. And so from an asset perspective, asset-based community development how do we help you leverage the assets you have so that you can achieve your fullest potential? Which brings us conveniently to the new Buffalo Institute, something that Canisius is founding. Is, is the nut of that just what you said, the idea of leveraging existing community assets? What, what is the new Buffalo Institute going to do? Uh, yes, and, and so the, the essence of it uh, is how do we mobilize our 
institutional resources and assets, our people, our expertise, um, our, our philanthropic support? Um, how do we mobilize those assets in service of the community, but in service of the community from a perspective of leveraging the community's assets? Uh, and so the New Buffalo Institute, um, which has been around for, uh, for a few years, uh, but we're, we're currently searching for a, a new director, and, that's ex- and it's, it's an exciting moment um, to join the Canisius family, um, particularly because of what the New Buffalo Institute will do. It will make us as an institution, more closely wedded to and embedded in our community. Um, and does, so, it, does it end up casting the college in some sort of economic development role? How does it work? I think the initiatives that will flow through and, and, and from the New Buffalo Institute, um, I hope they will serve that role. Um, economic development. I hope they will serve the role um, of opening the door to Canisius for young families who don't have a familiarity with us. Um, I hope it will serve a a role to empower our our community to know that we are a resource. Um, I I hope it will serve any number of of roles. Uh, But the most important thing for us is to be there, to be present, not for our benefit, but for the benefit of the community. Because as Buffalo goes, so goes Canisius. I think earlier in the conversation you used the word intentionality. That's kind of what you're talking about here. Very much so. Very much so. Not um, in a very strategic way. Um, Being intentional in how we invest um, in our community because we know the data is very clear on this. We know the impact it will have um, not just on an individual but on that individual's family, on that community, um, on our greater city and region. Um, And so one by one, um, we will do this work um, because it is important to Buffalo, it is important to Western New York, and it's important to Canisius. Educational institutions obviously do scholarship and research. Is the Institute in any way a a think tank? I I think of the University of Buffalo, and I don't want to Uh, compare the two of you in the same conversation, but they have the UB Regional Institute, which has done a lot of studies about how the region is governed. Is this new Buffalo Institute in any way think tanky, if that's a word? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm going to make up a word as well. Um, I I don't... Because then it won't look so bad when I did. Right. I, I, I wouldn't say it's a think tank. I would say it's an action thing. So we are about action... Um, and, and so certainly there will, there will be um, scholars and research to help better understand and inform our decisions uh, and the work we do. Uh, but we, we are, as a Jesuit institution, uh, about action. Uh, and so we will get out in our community. We will roll up our sleeves. And we will walk side by side um, with our neighbors uh, in helping to do the work that addresses some of the s- systemic challenges that we talked about earlier today. One of the other things that uh, is kind of on the portfolio or in the portfolio is your Borders and Migration Initiative. If we're talking about diversity, we can't just look, obviously, at the east side. Uh, The latest census for the city of Buffalo showed that it was the influx of refugees that actually helped us uh, keep from having a population decline. Tell me about the Borders and Migration Initiative. What is it? Uh, so, I mean, the, the data point you raised is a, is a really good one, and that's one of the things that um, I love about Buffalo. Uh, it, it is a 
it is such a diverse community um, shaped by um, some of those immigrant communities. Um, and I often talk about one of the greatest assets for Canisius uh, is we are one of a handful of institutions in the U.S. that exist on an international border. Um, mm. we, we don't often think of our northern You're border right. yep. as an international border, it's but, but it is. just for so much granted. <laughs> Right. Uh, and so that's that's a great asset uh, for us as, as an institution, and and we need to continue to talk about that. Uh, but the Borders and Migration Initiative um, is such important work because it resonates with our mission, uh, and it is really about helping uh, our students and our broader community understand um, the challenges posed. Um, I'll say the, at, at our southern border. Um, the humanitarian um, crisis that exists there uh, and our obligation, again, in thinking about our neighbor, um, not just our neighbor on our street or in this community, like you said, um, our, our neighbor in a global sense. Uh, and how do we, from our positionality, how do we address that humanitarian crisis in a, in a way that is that respects the dignity um, of, of our neighbors to, to the South? So this uh, effort is specific to... The southern border, pretty much. Okay. Uh, and so our, our faculty, um, Richard Reitzma, who, who leads this up, um, has been incredible in his commitment. Um, I know we are partnering with the Kino Border Initiative um, this this semester uh, to take a group of students down um, to, to the border to engage in the work. Not to observe, to engage in the work. Um, to lend their time and talent and energy um, to supporting um, their their brothers and sisters at the border? Another rhetorical question, but I think <laughs> I need to hear you answer it anyway. Um, forgive the preface. By concentrating on all of these specialized demographics, everything from the HEOP program to the border program you just spoke of, is there any fear or concern that you are by default, leaving the rest of the population, your 73% white student population, behind in any way? Is, is, that, a, is that a struggle? Is there some tension there? It's a legitimate question. Um, I don't struggle with it because I, I know, and, and our students bear this out, um, this generation uh, of, of students, of young people, they are more socially conscious um, and I've read somewhere recently that they're more activists, whatever that means, yeah. um, than any generation since the Vietnam War. So our students, uh, and it's not defined by color or socioeconomics, our students care deeply about the issues that are shaping their world. The climate, migration, immigration, uh, they care about women's rights. and like, They care deeply about those issues, not shaped by geography or race or ethnicity or socioeconomics. Um, they just need support and help and guidance to channel all that energy and all that passion into action. And get, that's what Canisius does. I get my support and guidance from other people on the staff here. <laughs> and someone pulled me aside before the program and says, don't mention basketball, but ask him about the NCAA hockey game this weekend. <laughs> so closing 15 seconds here, uh, the hockey team. Closing 15 seconds, Saturday, 6 p.m., 
at the Harbor Center. Um, our men's hockey program will host the AHA championship game against Holy Cross. Um, so Jesuit against Jesuit on the ice for a chance to go to the NCAA Division I men's hockey tournament. This is the first time in our history that we are hosting the championship game, and we are really excited uh, about what the ice grips are going to do on Saturday. President Stout, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Canisius College President Steve Stout. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.